0: how brady unethically used an aurora theater victim's family in a stunt lawsuit and why it ultimately worked plus costas morris on why including gun suicides and gun violence stats is misleading that and more on this episode of the weekly reload podcast
1: oh, the devil's got no
0: All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gatowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free weekly newsletter today if you want to keep up to date with the latest on guns in America. This week, we are looking at a, the debate over gun violence and how to categorize gun violence, including whether or not gun-related suicides should be part of that count. And we have a, a special guest with us, Costas Moros, who's a gun rights lawyer based in California, who just wrote a piece on The Reload on this topic for us, did an analysis piece. Sometimes we have outside uh, writers come in and do pieces for us, and Costas has done a couple for us in the past, and now we've got a brand new one up over at The Reload. It's not a member exclusive, so anyone listening is free to go and, and read it. Uh, welcome to the show, how are you doing today, Custis?
2: Good, Stephen. Good. Sorry for your listeners. I, as much as I'm honored to be on Stephen's show, I don't usually wear a suit, but uh, I'm coming out of a court <laughs> hearing on Zoom. So uh, you get me in the suit today. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be on the show and always uh, an honor to be featured in The Reload.
0: Yeah, I did. it uh, was coming off a CNN interview last week yeah. when I filmed the podcast. So I was wearing a suit last week. Now I'm wearing my more casual attire for anyone watching on YouTube I know that <laughs> this goes over the head of everyone listening on the podcast right. but uh, anyone watching on YouTube yes that uh, sometimes the show's very classy <laughs> by accident but you know still. So yeah, you 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 want to tell us just a little bit more about your background before we get going?
2: Sure, sure. For uh, listeners who haven't uh, heard me or read about me before, I am a lawyer for Michelle and Associates out in California. We regularly represent the California Rifle and Pistol Association in its litigation uh, against. Various uh, state gun laws, some local ones, too. For example, the most famously, I think, is the uh, magazine case Duncan v. Becerra, which led to Freedom Week a few years ago. Um, that's actually what led me to seek out the job at the firm uh, originally. Now I'm working oh, on the case, which is uh, which is fun. Um, uh, but yeah, that's, that's what we're most well known for.
0: Yeah. And obviously, you wrote the piece in your personal capacity, not as... Uh, represent correct correct.
2: Or, I'm not a statistician uh, by trade either just to be clear i'm a I'm an sure. attorney who uh who likes to nerd out on statistics
0: <laughs> right mm. uh, and so you know just to be upfront with everyone so everybody has a full understanding of your background and and also the role and just in you writing this piece for the reload uh, you uh, are an outside contributor who um, <clears throat> works for a gun rights group correct lawyers but Uh, didn't write this piece in that capacity. Correct, yeah. Just to be crystal clear on all of that. Um, So let's get into this. You argue in this piece that essentially gun suicides should not be counted as gun violence, especially when discussing um, gun restrictions or policies uh, to that regard, gun laws, essentially. Can you just give us a quick breakdown of your basic Argument here, so the basic argument is that, of course, suicide
2: matters, including suicides that are gun related it's in fact, it matters a lot because it uh, gun related suicides are responsible for over twenty thousand uh losses a year uh, so this is a massive amount of suffering, and it needs to be addressed. The problem though I think, and this is me speaking as an advocate, you might have a different take as a journalist, is that these gun control organizations um They seem to want to use suicide to inflate the count. But their policies don't actually really touch on suicide, except for a couple that conceivably could, which I covered in the piece. Uh, So when they talk about this gun violence rate or the gun deaths, uh, they they want the layperson to evoke images of criminals, mass shooters, general homicides and assaults. What they don't really implicate there is suicide. But if you ever push them on this, and I have, they'll say, what, you don't think suicide matters? And it's like, no, of course it does. But this is a very distinct problem that is separate, I think, from what gun control purports to solve generally, except for the few that call for a complete ban on guns, I guess, because uh, as I mentioned in the piece, things like assault weapons bans, magazine capacity limits, they don't matter to suicide. I mean, uh, it's grim to say, but you can kill yourself just fine with a flintlock pistol. You know, it, it doesn't take much to uh, to be effective in that grim task. So that's where I come from on this. And sorry, I know that's a bit more advocacy, but that's that's what I am. So.
0: No, certainly. Uh, and just give us an idea. In your piece, you talk about the breakdown between gun violence and gun suicide. Like how, how much of an effect does including suicides in the, a gun violence count have on that final number?
2: Well, it it more than doubles it because, uh, suicides most years are, I think around 55 or 60%. I think now because of the surge in homicides, the proportion of suicide suicide has actually fallen a bit, but it's still a majority. I think the number, let me pull up the piece here. Uh, the number was, uh, suicides in 2020 were 53.7% of gun related deaths and homicides were 42.9% and the remaining balance were, you know, accidents, law enforcement shootings and undetermined. So, uh, that, that
0: comes from the CDC. It that's desire. the c d
2: c numbers, yes, um, so that's uh my good friends at the c d c but but that's where those numbers come from, yeah,
0: and they get those by asking coroners essentially are required to report Correct. these these numbers to the c d c so it's fairly it's a fairly reliable
2: hey, method
0: it, of of determining this, right
2: It's the most comprehensive that exists as far as I know. Um, So yeah, it's what we have to rely on.
0: Right. Because obviously there's a lot of things when it comes to guns in America where you're dealing with things that are more like estimates, right? Close guesses. You're using survey based information uh, that, you know, tries to come up with a statistically significant uh, um, group of people to ask, but isn't a one-to-one like this, this is a little more reliable, perhaps these numbers because they are literally all of the um the the coroner's reports from across the entire country, and it's based on what the coroners are saying about these deaths that they're recording.
2: And and, cre- and re- I think it's also worth adding for the homicide numbers, the 43% approximately that are homicides is that the CDC is kind of agnostic on what a homicide is when it comes to, it just says it's gun related. So that includes, for example, it doesn't include law enforcement because they categorize that differently, but it does include justified homicides. So a few mm. of those are certainly uh, not murders. They're they're justified homicides. So that's worth looking Right.
0: And that's also why when we talk about crime statistics, of course, you get uh it's important to understand where these numbers come from so most crime statistics when you, when you're talking about murder uh people aren't citing the cdc numbers It's because cdc doesn't give you a lot of information about the homicide just that there was a homicide and and the type of uh, weapon used is is categorized to a broad degree like guns but uh most people will cite fbi numbers when it comes to homicides. well because... we can't anymore but... right yes this <laughs> a significant problem now because yeah. the fbi changed their method of collecting homicide data or really all crime data uh in 2020 which is probably the worst possible time to do it and they haven't had good compliance rates from police departments but uh, i'm just getting at the point that these are uh, these numbers are going to be a little bit different from the FBI to the CBC because of the way they go about collecting them. The FBI will give you more detailed numbers, uh, especially back when they were they had a more uh, they had a lot better compliance with their reporting system pre 2020. So you look at the 2019 numbers; those are sort of the last really solid numbers the FBI have. But they they delve into more about the victims and the types of weapons beyond just guns into that's where you get a lot of like rifles are involved in 500 murders a year or so, including all. Rifles, and they, and they right?
2: do distinguish between murders and other kinds of homicide as well, which is right. important. Yeah.
0: And the CDC doesn't do that. No. And so this is sort of a different set of numbers. It's reliable for the reasons we talked about, but it's different than what you're probably used to hearing. If you're someone out there listening to reports on murder in the United States, because a lot of those focus on the FBI numbers because they're a bit more detailed. But their collection methods are different. So, you know, I just think it's important to note how, where these numbers come from and what we're talking about here. But uh, but from what we understand, generally speaking, and this, this is backed up with, as you said, there's been a slight change the last couple of years because of the murder surge that we've experienced in the United States. But generally speaking, suicides uh, are far more common than... Uh, than murders when it comes to gun deaths, that's the basic point, right?
2: Yes, it's uh, undeniable. In fact, if, if, if anything, the homicide surge has reduced that a bit. But in every year till now, as far as I'm aware, uh, suicides are a majority of. Uh, yeah, usually deaths. it's closer
0: to two thirds. Right? Yes,
2: yeah, two sixty percent, two thirds, something like that. Most years,
0: yeah. But you will often see gun control advocates use gun death rate, right?
2: (laughs) Yes. Uh, and look, there is value to a measure of gun related death, which is what I prefer to call it. Uh, but, um, But you have to be clear about what you're talking about. So if you're going into a holistic, if, for example, you were writing an article and said, we need to deal with guns, guns are, and you say in the beginning, guns are responsible for, are used in homicides, they're used in suicides, and this is our total gun-related death. They don't do that. They don't say the word suicide usually, unless they're pressed on it. And then they'll say, uh, they'll go into it a little bit. But um, if you're not being transparent and you're just saying gun deaths or gun violence, People aren't thinking about suicide because that's not what the word violence evokes, you know. And when you're thinking about gun deaths, you're usually thinking about um, – and they do this very purposefully uh, – a criminal attacking someone, not suicide.
0: Right. Yeah. And so there's two specific examples that you use in your piece uh, about how this can be misleading. Uh, can you just go over those real quick? I think one was – significantly worse than the other. The Violence Project has a website about concealed carry killers, right? Um, yeah. This, so,
2: so the Violence Policy Center uh, has a website, like Stephen says, called the Concealed Carry Killers. Um, and that one measures all, I guess, gun-related death caused by supposedly these concealed carry killers. I'm doing scare quotes there for the people listening on the podcast. Um, and they count, I think it was approximately 2,400 from 2007 to about a year ago, 2022 is what their date range is. Uh, the problem is, and the web, if you go into their background page, they have a nice little chart, which shows you what this is made up of. And over twelve hundred of these twenty four hundred are suicides, and they're not even murder suicides because they count murder suicides separately. So these are just twelve hundred people who just killed themselves, hurt nobody else. And Violence Policy Center calls them killers uh, because they had a carry permit. Uh, and even I mean, there's other issues with the with that website. For one, they they list uh, about five hundred convicted murderers, um, but it doesn't say if those murderers killed somebody out in public or at home. Because if they killed somebody at home, uh, that the carry permit isn't even relevant uh, to, to the discussion, really. Sure. Yeah. But,
0: but I think that's sort of the most egregious, perhaps, right. example of this problem you're talking yes. about, right? yeah. where, where uh, committing suicide is not only counted as gun violence, but they're labeling people who do that as killers.
2: Yeah, it's shameful. I think, I think, I would hope even many others on the gun control side would agree that that's not acceptable and that they wouldn't do that. I think the violence, the Mm. violence policy center should probably change that or at least change the name of its website. I mean, that's, it's pretty, it's pretty bad.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably the worst example that you were, were able to, to put into this piece, but it's not the only one, right? So there's a more mainstream sort of use of this gun death rate uh, uh, statistic talk about that there, every town i believe every is, town is, is the one
2: yeah so every town ranks every state by gra- by their every town grade um and they score them based on how much gun control they pass and then they also tell you their gun death rate now, the reason they do this is because if you combine suicides and homicides together into just a gun death rate number, there does appear to be some correlation at least visually between, you know, states that have a lot of gun control and states that have low gun death rates. The problem for them and I think they realize this and that's why they do this, is that doesn't work if you just count homicides. If you count homicides, there's no apparent correlation between these scores whether it be Gifford's or every town and their uh and their Gun hom, gun related homicide rate or even overall homicide rate. Um, there there's no correlation. So they're kind of torturing the data here and saying gun death rate to include suicide so they can show you that look at all all these states that have all this gun control and they have a low gun death rate. Well, that's misleading, I, I think.
0: And as you mentioned at the start of the the show here the, the this statistic, this gun death rate statistic and this idea that it correlates with gun laws. Uh, is used to push primarily policies that have no effect on suicide. Can you talk a little bit more about
2: that? Yeah, so if they're going to use suicides, uh, gun-related suicides, as a platform to push gun laws, and not only use them, but it's more than half of their count – then you would think that, okay, fine, but all these, a lot of these policies should be related to stopping suicide. Otherwise, you're just using these, uh, this number to push unrelated, when I say unrelated, dealing with homicide uh, gun control laws. So I went through every town's criteria that they used to uh, grade states, and I think I found just three, maybe four, I think it was three gun laws that even if they worked, if if we gave them the benefit of the doubt and just assumed that these laws do what they say and accomplish their purpose, only three out of about 40 – had anything to do with suicide? I think those were red flag laws. Conceivably, I guess you could red uh, you could uh, stop someone from committing suicide by having their guns taken. There were safe storage uh, laws, and I believe there was one more. Uh, my my uh, memories uh, failing me right now, but there was one more there that if it had uh, oh, mental health
0: voluntarily commitment.
2: Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So that th- those three could conceivably if they worked, stop suicide, but it's such a small percent for, for a problem that, you know, gun related suicides over half of the gun deaths they report uh, but only a small fraction of their proposed solutions like I said earlier the, you know their marquee items are like assault weapons bans magazine restrictions licensing that that's not going to stop somebody who's suicidal you you know often these people don't have any kind of criminal record the background check won't stop them and again you don't need a you don't need a thirty round magazine to commit suicide so
0: yeah mm. and in addition to that you also looked at international rates of suicide compared to the United States. Uh, How does the United States compare to other countries that have much stricter gun laws uh, and far fewer firearms? Right. So, so this argument that,
2: uh, and this is one of the arguments we get uh, um, when we point this out, they'll push back and say, well, you know, if we had better gun control and guns were less available because of this stricter gun control, there would be less suicides because, and this is undeniable, a suicide attempt with a gun is more likely to succeed than somebody mm-hmm. trying to poison themselves or even right. hang themselves. I think maybe only jumping off of things is comparable to uh, guns in its fun- finality. Uh, but, uh, there clearly would be at least a large degree of substitution because the United States, for all its guns, and we have a lot of them, is still within the normal range of first world suicide rates. Now, I'm not going to deny we are on the higher end of that range, of that normal range, but it's not like our homicide numbers where we're way outside, you know, the the normal range for first world countries. You know, there's a handful of countries that uh, are wealthy and have very strict gun control and have higher suicide rates than us. I think the article listed as examples Japan, South Korea, and Belgium. Um, and I think there were others as well.
0: Yeah, yeah so I, I believe the piece you uh, you cite a statistic that shows there's what fourteen point six per hundred thousand you know suicides in the United States compared to South Korea, which has twenty four point six if I'm remembering the numbers correctly here. That is a pretty stark difference, especially considering, uh, you know, the fact that the United States is far and away the leader in civilian gun ownership, and South Korea has some extremely strict gun laws and very few firearms per uh, resident. So, uh, you know, obviously there's more going on, there's more at play here than just gun availability or gun laws when it comes to suicide, right? Is that... Yeah. I mean, and, basic and,
2: and you can see this too by the, uh, we, we also have, although gun suicides, I think are the majority of suicides in the United States. We do have a, it's, it's not a huge majority. We still have over 20,000. I think, uh, I, I said the number in the piece, but of non gun related suicides So I think there would be a significant amount of substitution here. I'm going to be intellectually honest. If someone cast a magic spell and every gun in the country disappeared tomorrow morning, would su- our suicide rate drop a little perhaps, but I don't, don't think it's as dramatic as people might assume. You know, I think it might drop, you know, a tiny amount, but there would be substitution uh, for other methods because that's what other countries have seen. I believe I I should have included this in the piece, but uh, I I had read about how Australia following its uh, restrictions on guns, the gun ownership rate did decline, but the suicide rate didn't. Uh, they there was substitution seen in that context, but I, I guess I should save that piece for another day when I've actually looked at the data thoroughly.
0: <laughs> right, right, that's always an important part of yeah. <laughs> publishing piece. Yes, but uh, I think ultimately, you know, obviously, you're you're clearly not saying that gun suicide should be ignored, or that it's not a problem, or that gun owners uh, and gun control advocates alike shouldn't try to come up with the most effective way to uh, reduce the use of firearms to commit suicide. And you know, certainly there are initiatives, we've had podcasts uh, dedicated specifically to this topic within the gun-owning community uh, about how to do that. You know, some of the best practices, uh, there's Walk the Talk America is one, one example. That's who we had on for the podcast, but um, you know, there, there, are, there are a number of initiatives out there trying to tackle this problem because it is a serious problem. But but you're saying, and I think rather persuasively, obviously we published the piece, so I, you know, I, I was fairly um, convinced by your arguments here. But uh, that including gun suicides into a gun violence category is really just misleading people about what you're, you're trying to to get across. Right. That's that's what it comes down to, basically.
2: Right. And I'd have far less of an objection, although this might still mislead people if they labeled it gun related death or said gun violence, counting suicides, as long as people need to be aware of it. And look, suicide is a huge issue. And I'm the first I think we talked about this uh yesterday uh on a call when we were discussing the article which was that i always tell people people on my side look if some if you are battling depression or if someone in your family is and uh and either lock up your guns if it's someone in your family so that you're certain they can't get them or get them out of the house because it's big of a risk self-defense is important but you're if somebody is battling depression in your house that's the bigger threat to life uh, when there's a gun in the house than uh any sort of potential crime so I'm the I'm not, you know, trying to belittle suicide at all. It's a huge concern and we need to watch out for people who uh display signs of that and get them the help they need, including encouraging them to temporarily dispossess themselves of the guns until they are in a better place, until they are treated. Um uh, but yes, as as you cited, I I kind of frankly despise how uh, these groups use these sad stories, these personal tragedies as a platform when their policies don't even really relate to them very much, if at all. That's Mm. that's the long and short of it.
0: Yeah. And by the way, just as an aside here, anyone who is struggling with that or knows someone who is should reach out to a group like Walk Walk the Talk America for help. Uh, That's the best thing you can do is to to try and reach out to somebody who is trained in these uh, areas to help people uh, yeah, and, and I would encourage anyone who is in that situation to do so, but <clears throat> I do want to talk about the other piece you recently wrote for us a little while back that is in the same vein, in the same category as this one, but deals more specifically with California. So in the wake of the mass shootings that happened there in January, you saw governor Newsom, uh, Touting California's gun death rate as evidence that, again, the strict gun control policies he supports work. Can you tell us a little bit more about California in particular uh, on this topic? Oh,
2: I have a lot to say about my home state, but we'll keep it focused here. So Governor Newsom, uh, my friend Governor Newsom, not um, he did indeed come out and say after uh, the series of mass shootings, at least the first one, I don't know if the second one had happened yet at that point, but uh, he came out and used this same sort of tactic, the gun death rate, uh, and used that to proclaim that California has a uh, a lower overall gun death rate. Of course, California has uh, a very low suicide rate comparatively, but a pretty average, I I think it's on the better side of things. So it isn't bad, but the the homicide rate is nothing extraordinary. And I think uh, the piece Uh, That I had done, it's been a minute since I looked at it, but it compared its next door neighbors because I always think that's the best comparison as opposed to going across the country because there's more of a closer relationship with neighboring states and uh, Arizona, Nevada, and Oregon, and all those states. Have less gun control than California. I know Oregon recently passed its uh, magazine capacity limits and licensing, but that hasn't really even taken effect yet. So uh, Oregon, while it's not it's not Arizona, but it was less. uh, It did have a lot less gun control than California did. Oregon has half the homicide rate. Nevada has almost the same homicide rate. I want to say it was 4.4 versus 4.7, and Arizona is only slightly higher at 5.1 per 100,000 versus California's 4.4. And these are all states yes. to varying degree, especially Arizona, which have significantly less gun control, and they're right next door. But they do have right. higher suicide rates. Uh, all, all of them, I believe. I can't. I can't recall Oregon. So that's where uh, this. Uh, that's where gov- That's what uh, Governor Newsom latches onto to make his point.
0: Yeah, in your piece on this, which is which is a member exclusive, by the way, um, the new one is is free for everyone. This one is a member exclusive. You talk about how every town's uh, gun strength, gun law strength rating for California is 86.5, which is among the highest, if not the highest. Yeah,
2: it is the highest. Um,
0: Arizona is an 8.5, yet the difference in their murder rate, uh, their gun murder rate is negligible. It's 4.4 to
2: 5.1. And that was just that year. I think it was a couple times in the 2010s. I think 2015, Arizona had a lower rate, and that was after five years of their constitutional carry being enacted. So California is usually a little bit lower than Arizona, but it does fluctuate, and the states tend to be very close together uh, year after year, despite being polar opposites on uh, the degree of gun rights that they uh, honor.
0: Yeah, and there's lots of other states... As well, you know, I I think you're right as far as comparing neighbors Mm -hmm. goes, especially when you have two neighboring states that are so starkly uh, aligned in this issue. There's there's such stark divisions between Arizona, which, like you mentioned, is a um, permitless carry state. It has no assault weapons ban. It's it's one of the uh, states that has the least restrictive gun laws in the country. Uh, And then California, of course, is right next door with what. I think many would argue are the most restrictive.
2: Yeah. And I also like Arizona because it counters a claim I hear. So usually when you make these sorts of claims, a lot of the states with the low homicides rates are states like New Hampshire, Vermont, Wyoming, Idaho. And the the usual counter argument to that is, well, these are rural states. Arizona Mm -hmm. isn't California, but it's not exactly a rural state. It certainly has rural parts, but Phoenix is a very big city. You know, it has other big cities there in that state. So it makes for a good comparison for that reason as well. It's not just another, you know, rural backwater, as they call it, quote unquote. So it it is a populous uh, metropolitan state in many areas. And despite that, and despite its permissive attitude towards guns, the homicide rate is very close to California's.
0: Yeah, and you listed out a number of other states that have a similar or lower homicide rate, gun, gun related homicide rate in particular as well. Yes. Than California. So you've got here Maine, North North Dakota, Wyoming, Idaho, Utah, Minnesota, Nebraska, Iowa, South Dakota, Montana, Alaska, Colorado, Wisconsin, West Virginia, Virginia, Kansas, and Florida. You know, so it's a pretty California's rate is just not that exceptional. I yeah, think it's, the, it's fine.
2: I think I'd say I'd call it fine. Like it's decent, but it's not exceptional. That's accurate. Um, those All those states you listed either have lower rates than California or only slightly higher rates than California.
0: Right. And actually the RAND Corporation, which is a, a nonprofit that does a lot of gun related research, uh, that's a little more down the line than a lot of the other ones out there. Like you know, oftentimes like John Hopkins, for instance, is funded by uh, Bloomberg directly. Uh, their their gun violence research program and so Rand Corporation is a little bit uh, more independent than some of the other groups out there. Uh, though they're not necessarily uh, you know terribly ideologically focused one way or the other. They did they put out a, a new Um, resource, I guess you'd call it, on their website that lets you look at all of the uh, individual states on the basis of their uh, gun death rate, their homicide rate, their suicide rate, their gun homicide rate, and their gun suicide rate. And honestly, while there's a lot more to that that I'm very skeptical of inside of this new program that Rand is doing, including you know they, they sort of They give you this tool that lets you try and um, adjust individual states' gun laws, and then they give you like a percentage effect that would have on the the murder or suicide rates, which I find highly, highly (laughs) questionable that you could actually reliably do something like that based off of the evidence that exists, especially since a lot of these states, you know, sometimes a state. Adopting the strictest gun laws will bring its murder rate down. Sometimes it'll make it go up and it's like, okay, this doesn't make a lot of sense. But I think that the base tool of letting you see each state by gun murder rate and then just overall murder rate is, can be fairly useful. And what I see looking at it are frankly more regional differences than ideological differences. Uh, for instance, the South, Tends to be more violent. Uh, they have most southern states have more overall homicides and gun related homicides than most northeastern or mountain west states do. Uh, and then they also tend to have fewer suicides than the northeastern mountain west. Yeah, I states.
2: believe the uh, the the usual suicide majority, homicide minority actually flips in the south. I think it's actually more yeah. homicides in the south and less suicides. And that's I don't know what causes that, but I right. uh, I mean you can say for example, like a state like Mississippi is very similar to a state like Idaho in terms of gun laws, but they're polar opposites on the results, right? That one mm-hmm. has, Idaho is a very very safe state and Mississippi is not. So Uh, Yeah. yeah.
0: And so there seems to be a lot more going on here than just what gun laws you have in place and, uh, you know, how many guns per capita you have in the state, uh, which is another thing that's even harder to to measure. But and then, of course, I think there's another inherent flaw in sort of even that basic approach of looking at these things from a state level. Right. Because I and I believe you wrote a piece for us a while back that talked about this, but crime, you know, especially murder. Is not really a state level issue in the United States. It's more of a local issue, or a city level issue. Uh, same for suicide too, actually. You know, all, and and they're sort of the inverse problems, right? There's suicide rates tend to be higher in rural areas and lower in urban areas, and murder rates tend to be higher in urban areas and lower in rural areas. Is Correct. that? Is that right?
2: No, that that that's entirely correct. I think one of the states I had looked at was uh, Missouri, where uh, you, your homicide rate in Missouri depends entirely on whether you're in Kansas City or St. Louis. Because if you're not, right. it's very close to the national average. If you are, it's like sadly a third world country in terms of homicide rate. So, yeah,
0: yeah. So there's you know there's a lot that goes into this, of course, and and I think that's a further knock on this idea of just trying to lump all gun deaths together and draw broad sweeping conclusions from that data. Uh, you know, th- there's <laughs> there's a lot of problems with that, right? It's not just that adding suicides makes it misleading. It's even that, you know, not discussing the urban-rural divide that makes it misleading as well, or, you know, and, or even just trying to say that, because one state has a certain gun policy if it en- enacted a different one the percentage of murders would change by 5% or 6% you know i think these are these are not realistic approaches to studying this issue and coming up with solutions for it
2: yeah it's and and it's you're playing at the margins with a lot of these laws, right? Like th- there's only some, I, I, maybe there's some gun control laws out there that could reduce homicide. I don't know, but it does seem like it hasn't had much of an effect in at least my home state of California. Uh, there hasn't uh, been a noticeable decline either way uh, in uh, in how these policies are affecting this data.
0: Hmm. So bottom line, what, what's your takeaway from all this? What, how would, how do you want to see things move on from here?
2: I think there just needs to be more transparency. And sadly, I don't think it's actually going to happen, but uh, because there, there's too much there, There's a big, like we talked about earlier, the big motivation here for them to continue to include suicides in this data is because their data only works if they include suicide. So they're not going to drop it. And at the same time, when you, when you push them on it, they will, the gun control groups will always try and shame you for it to say, why, why don't you care about suicides? Well, uh, I think to uh, As an advocate for the gun right side, I think how we counter that is actually be proactive in trying to combat suicide so nobody can ever accuse us of not caring about them because we do. But in terms of informing policy. Now, when, when you're talking about gun control, if you're going to push this suicide focused count, then your policy should be focused on stopping suicide, not on, you know, taking away someone's 15 round Glock magazine, because <laughs> that has no bearing on anything, uh, at least not for uh suicide. So that that's where I'm on that. And, uh, as for governor Newsom, um, I, I, this is a perfect example of how, um, He's a perfect example of why they do what they do, because they want politicians like him to repeat uh, these uh, these statements.
0: All right. Well, we really appreciate you coming on the show again. This is the second time you've been on. Uh, so it's been a while, but it's good to have you back on. And and hopefully we can have you on again in the future. I think you you uh, have a lot of good analysis to bring us.
2: Well, thanks, Stephen. Uh, it's always a pleasure. And like I said, the last time I was on, everyone subscribed to the Reload. Stephen is uh, doing important work uh, and uh, we should support it.
0: Thank you. Well, uh, hopefully we'll have some more of your pieces in the future if you have some more good ideas uh, like this. And and um, we really appreciate you contributing and coming on the show to explain your views on these things. And I think I think our audience enjoys it. I think we get a lot out of it. So We'll have to have you on again in the future, but for now, that's it. We're going to head over to the news update.
1: All right, it's time for the news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined, of course, by Reload founder Steve Gutowski. How are we doing this week, Steve?
0: I'm doing all right. Jake, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, it's finally uh, the weather's warming up a little bit. We had about like a three-day stretch of zero-degree weather here in Colorado, so (laughs) finally the sun's out and it's... (laughs) Being a little bit nicer out here so
0: we had uh 80 degree weather yesterday in dc wow. area in virginia here but uh it's going down to freezing this weekend and we might get some snow for the first time uh, the rest of the country has been hit with a lot of these mega storms uh mega storm yeah. storms this year but in this particular area we haven't had any snow at all and we've had a lot of unseasonably warm weather so it's kind of been the opposite for for those of us out here, which I don't like, I prefer having all four seasons
1: in my year, but I'm from Pennsylvania originally, so that's probably why. Right. Yeah. Not used to the constant humidity even in in February. Mm. Uh, but anyways, on to the news this week. Uh, you have a couple pieces about some new details that have come to light about actually an old lawsuit that the uh, the gun control group Brady had filed on behalf of a couple who lost their daughter in a mass shooting. If you want to tell us a little bit about some details that have come to light about how that, how that lawsuit played out.
0: Yeah, this one's actually out of Colorado, where you are. It relates to the Aurora theater shooting where, um, the parents of one of the victims attempted to sue, uh, lucky gunner and, uh, other retailers for selling ammunition and magazines and tear gas and body armor to, uh, the shooter. Um, and it actually wasn't filed by Brady. This key detail here. I, uh, it was filed in at their urging and with their lawyers who were working pro bono, but Brady wasn't actually a plaintiff in this case. And that's important because when they lost this case, uh, The plaintiffs had to pay for the legal fees of the defendants. And so this couple who'd lost their daughter in the Aurora shooting, uh, was forced to be on the hook for hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. Now, the thing is, this shouldn't have come as a surprise to anyone involved. This case was, uh, the judge called it meritless. It was a symbolic case. This is something that the gun right the gun control groups have been doing for decades at this point. They started in the 90s filing these cases that are not so much designed to win on the merits uh, and get a ruling in their favor. They're more designed to tie up gun companies in litigation that cost them a lot of money. And so, in response to this tactic, which again started in the nineties, you you saw the federal government pass the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act in the early 2000s. And you also had some states pass uh, sort of riders or complementary laws to that, including Colorado, which had uh, has a law, still has a law, that makes it uh, more likely that the plaintiffs in cases like this against gun companies will have to pay for the defendant's legal fees if they bring a case like this. And, uh, you know, and by a case like this, I mean a case where the claim is essentially that the gun company or the ammo companies in this particular case are liable for the actions of a third party who commits a criminal act like murdering someone, right? Even if they, the companies had no sort of involvement in the, the actual crime the idea here is to try and hold gun companies liable for uh, basically gun crime, generally speaking. And so those sorts of cases in Colorado are especially hazardous to plaintiffs. Uh, You know, this case didn't really um, state any sort of claim beyond the fact that these companies sold legal products and um and marketed them for sale uh, and then somebody w- used their products you know in this horrific way um, so that's sort of the the core of what happened here, and this case was never going to be won it wasn't really designed to be won, and they didn't win, and when they didn't win, they had to pay for the legal fees and the thing is that they apparently were not. Fully aware of all of this, that's what they told the Colorado Sun, and that's really the core of the story. Now, you know, it's coming out. We, we we knew years ago that they lost this case. They lost this case back in 2015. They were ordered to pay legal fees back then. Now we're finding out from them that it bankrupted them, and they weren't fully aware of the potential consequences. Uh, Brady didn't inform them at least that's what the couple says brady says otherwise brady says we did inform them we told we told them about the risks
1: yeah no that's a pretty i'd say unsavory if if what they're saying is correct that a, a major it's not uncommon that as you said they weren't directly involved but their lawyers helped bring this case forward mm-hmm. it's not uncommon for advocacy groups like this to kind of Spur on these lawsuits that they that align with them ideologically that they can then use to either fundraise or raise awareness. Uh, but if it is unclear whether or not they communicated properly that they could, in fact, be on the hook for hundreds of thousands of dollars, which they should have been aware of, this law is longstanding. It actually yeah. predates the federal protection for uh, gun liability shields. So it's not exactly that this was some novel law. This has been on the books for a while. So that's a a pretty big deal. And like you said, Brady denies it, but it still raises some questions, I think, about the tactics of some of these groups.
0: Well, look, there may have been some conversation that Brady's lawyers had with this couple about, oh, well, if you lose, this this is the potential consequences or what have you. But where they didn't really emphasize that they were absolutely guaranteed to lose. This was not a case that they were ever going to win. And it's right. not a case where they were likely to lose and not have to pay legal fees. You know, that, that's the thing. Like, they, Brady provided them lawyers without, you know, pro bono. So, you know, they told them, you know, you, our lawyers won't cost you anything. But <clears throat> if they didn't make clear, and uh, I think it's hard to see any other possibility here. They, they may have told them some basic level of the risks involved or had them sign a form or something. But clearly this couple did not get the full message. And that's the problem. That's what's highly unethical here. These cases are fairly unethical anyway, because they're basically slap lawsuits. They're not designed to win. They've had one significant settlement, which was again, a settlement, not a court victory. And as you mentioned, it was because Remington went bankrupt and their insurers were the ones on the hook for this lawsuit. And they decided to pay out the remainder of the insurance policy that existed, which was a lot of money, to be fair, and is perfectly good reason that gun control activists have tried to copycat that case ever since. Of course, they've lost all of the other ones that uh, have have come up in that manner. But, you know, th- these are not cases designed to win on the merits. Right. You know, they're basically saying that y- it sh- you shouldn't have sold these legal products in a legal, the legal way that you did right that that's the bottom line they didn't they're not accusing really these companies of breaking any sort of law they're they're accusing them of um selling products that they don't think people should be allowed to buy that's sort of right. the bottom line of these cases and um that that's the reason why you've seen this proliferation of laws that protect against this specific kind of case. There's uh, plenty of other ways you can sue gun companies, just like really any product manufacturer or dealer. Uh, If the product is defective, there are plenty of gun lawsuits that deal with defective firearms designs. Or if you defraud somebody or any of those other things, but you can't effectively sue a gun company just for selling guns, basically. Um, and and so you know, that, that's one level of questionability that goes on with these kinds of suits. In this particular case, it's even worse, I think, because clearly, the plaintiffs who are just, it seems they're just regular people, or, or were just regular people. Uh, you know, when they filed the suit, they're obviously have their beliefs about gun control, which they're entitled to. And that's all well and good, but they obviously didn't have a clear understanding of what was going to happen when they filed this case. And Brady and their lawyers did have a clear understanding. There's no way they didn't know Every anyone who knows anything about this. I knew when, when this was happening, that this is how it was going to come out. Um, that, you know, there, there's the the chance of it ending in a settlement like Remington is any of these cases is very small that it's like one in one out of the thousands that this is of these cases that have been brought over the decades. It's, it's not, uh, they, there is that one example now, so it's more than zero, but generally speaking, these cases are not designed to win. They're not designed to get to a ruling from the judge in favor of the plaintiffs. They're just designed to br- really uh, tie up these companies in court, but also get favorable coverage. And this generated a lot of favorable coverage, right? Um, right. And and the problem is these people weren't fully aware. It'd be one thing if they wanted to say, we, we really don't like this law. They're, they're still advocating against the, the Colorado law. Um, at this point, that's actually what this story that the Colorado Sun wrote in, uh, was about. The, this piece of information that they were misled into this settlement, uh, into this, uh, you know, uh, sanction, is way down in the Colorado Sun story, way towards the bottom. The most of the story is about how the they want to change this law. Uh, and it, you know, it's fine if they fully understood what was going to happen. They they don't like the law. They they're creating a situation where they're going to have to be, uh, they're going to have to pay a lot of money in legal fees because of this law. Yeah, you know, that, that's fine. That's how. That's how, a lot of political litigation works. You find a situation you don't like. You set up a test case and you go. From there, uh, even if you know you're going to lose, because you're trying to generate headlines and political pressure, and that's really what this case was was doing. Uh, The problem is (laughs) that the plaintiffs didn't understand that that's how it was going to turn out. You know, they seemed to really think that they win, and they still, frankly, they still seem pretty um, uninformed about the reality of what's going on because, uh, this couple still wants to repeal this law, which is fine, but that's not going to really change what happened in their case. Even without that Colorado law, they probably still could have been uh, held liable for damages and it's much less likely, I think without that law, but the case wouldn't have gone anywhere. The case is still, it's still going to be blocked by the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, which is a federal law.
1: Right. No, yeah, no, I agree. That's what I was going to bring up the same point. The fact that, you know, despite the hardship that they went through in this lawsuit and having to file for bankruptcy, they are, in fact, currently lobbying for the repeal of that law. And I, I believe at one point, at least the woman in this case, uh, actually worked for Brady uh, for a little bit. So yeah, Sandy Phillips yeah so it's clearly there's at least some ideological fellow traveling going on here um yeah, this and, makes and it fact, more likely
0: that they weren't lying about
1: right being right misled. that's true that, that gives credence to their claim that they didn't feel fully informed on the risks um which is unfortunate uh but it is worth noting that as of recording this one day before we recorded this colorado did just introduce that bill to repeal this law so we'll have to see how that goes i think there's a good shot that they repeal it but like you said it doesn't really change the trajectory of these lawsuits, perhaps the fee shifting goes away, but there's still a federal statute Maybe. that governs this stuff. I
0: think fee shifting becomes less likely. Sure. Although it sure. doesn't, I don't, you know, the risk of that doesn't go away completely, because these are still basically slap lawsuits. And um, if, if a judge feels that your claims are meritless, as the judge in this case did, he might still award legal fees. Because I mean, why should the gun companies have to pay a bunch of money to defend against rebelist lawsuits. I mean, that's that's the whole concept of an anti slap law, right? Right. Those lawsuits are bad. Um, And so, generally speaking, we try to uh, disincentivize them as a society. Now, in this particular case, this, uh, this was, this is a law that's targeted specifically for the gun industry, because they've been at the center of this tactic. But um yeah i think that gets at another important point this worked right i mean you know there's going to get a little bit of negative backlash for essentially driving this couple into bankruptcy for political purposes without their full knowledge of what was going on but i think that's wildly outweighed by how much positive or favorable at least coverage they got by having this this couple put in that situation there was a lot of coverage at the time. You know, I, in my analysis piece on this, which is a member exclusive over at The Reload, uh, I pointed to a Rachel Maddow segment. She did an outrageometer, meter And, of course, the whole segment's about how outrageous it was that they got saddled with this this, uh, this payment for legal fees. And, um, well, that was the whole point of doing this. That was what they were trying to get is a bunch of negative coverage about this law. So that eventually that you know, so that it would put political pressure now, you know, it's working now. Part of that is Colorado has just become more blue since 2015. Right. Um, But part of it is that there's an example of this, why this why Democrats should think this law is bad. And it was set up from the beginning, this was the whole concept of this case, (laughs) not to win but to lose in a way that generates a lot of attention and political pressure. And it worked, Right, even though the people at the center of it feel misled and were bankrupted in the process, which is crazy because I think a lot of people had assumed, including me actually at the time when I covered this, the outcome of this, I had written that it was uh, Brady who was ordered to pay these legal fees, because Brady is going around talking about this as their case. They're providing lawyers. The judge talked about how this is a basically a political stunt by Brady that uh, he and he was alluding to them paying for this settlement. But in reality, they they weren't on the hook. They didn't pay anything. They didn't help these people at all uh, once they were ordered to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. Like they, they were just non-existent. And they told us, um, you know, to their credit, they explained one, they repeatedly said that they did inform the, this couple, although we've already gone over why that, even if they said something that clearly wasn't enough. Um, and then they said they just don't have enough money to cover costs and cover settlements like this, which is pretty gross to me, I'll be honest with you. Right. Right. Like, then why did you rope these people into this case? If you, they couldn't cover it either, they went bankrupt. Um, and also, like Brady, while smaller than every town or Giffords or the NRA or these other groups, is a multi-million dollar organization. Uh, if and if if you know you can't cover the legal fees, and you ha- you know you haven't had a conversation with the plaintiffs saying, are you sure you can cover these? then it's hard to conclude that your purpose in this wasn't to bankrupt these people for political uh, reasons for, to get headlines out of it. Right. I mean, that's what happened and it worked, right. This law is probably going to be revealed. And it was, it's at least in part because of what happened in this case. And I just find the whole thing terrible. Like that's a terrible tactic, but, I don't, you know, uh, and I wonder how often this happens in other cases. How often are they not fully informing these plaintiffs or at the very least, how often are the plaintiffs not fully understanding what's going on? Because that's highly unethical in my mind, Right? highly unethical. One of the worst th- tactics I've seen in, in gun litigation ever. It, it's disturbing. Yeah,
1: no, it d- definitely is a bit distasteful, but as you said, it, it paid off for him. So it doesn't seem like the, the incentive is there so to really not no, do it. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: There's no reason they wouldn't do it again. I mean, this is, and you know, part of it is media coverage, right? Part of it is just incredulous, incredulous media coverage of this stuff. Maddow's segment is a perfect example of it. You know, um, they, uh, she, she's upset that this, this, this settlement was ordered but doesn't get into why that happened Uh, or, uh, you know, and now to be fair to her, I don't think anyone understood at the time that Brady wasn't going to help these people pay this settlement, you know, technically, yes. So I had to correct my piece because I had assumed that the Brady was going to be on the hook and no, they weren't plaintiffs. So they weren't on the hook, but it was still assumed by many people, including the judge that Brady was going to help them uh, you know, after the fact pay for this settlement. And it turns out they didn't at all. And, um, you know, the the setup of this case should have been obvious to, to everyone in, involved. Like there was no, there was no chance this case was going to win. It wasn't a particularly well written brief. <clears throat> it didn't have any real causes of action. And the outcome was inevitable from the moment it was filed. So I think all of the, the positive press that Brady generated from this uh, part of that is media. uh, Part of that's on the media just is. Yeah. Um, But most of it is on Brady because this is, this is what they were trying to do. They were successful in it and it's a gross tactic. It's very, very gross, especially to people who are, their allies this is yeah. uh, i i can't imagine ever being involved in something like that and not feeling dirty afterwards I don't
1: know. i'm being very it does
0: it does totally leave a bad taste in, in your mouth i i agree yeah <laughs> i just this this i think this set of lawsuits is pretty um bad to begin with this whole tactic is is um unethical in my mind and then this is just takes it to a new level of, of bad. But um, we have another story real quick here that we broke this week on another gun group, right? It's sort of a, to change gears a little bit. Um, w- w- we uh, had an exclusive story on the NRA, isn't that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, you broke the story actually that uh, in fact, uh, Jason may the head of NRA, ILA, the Institute for Legislative Action, their lobbying arm, their political activity arm, um, he is leaving the organization. Um, he's, he's stepping down from his role, and uh, I believe he's going to a, another private firm. He's going to go to the, step away from the political spotlight for a while. Well, he's um, going to like a consulting a, firm. Yeah, a consulting firm. Yeah, um, which is a big deal because Isla is, as is with the NRA being in turmoil as it has been, as we've reported repeatedly over the fa- mm. past couple of years, Isla has been one of the uh, functions of the organization that's remained fairly active. Um, and to have someone that's been at the helm depart, uh, I think that raises a few red flags, perhaps. You know, we don't know who's going to r- fill his shoes, but yeah. certainly that's not great for the NRA.
0: Yeah, it's certainly not great. Uh, Jason is was uh, the person who replaced Chris Cox, who was the longtime right. lo- top lobbyist at the NRA, uh, the one who had a lot of the connections with Uh, for instance, the Trump White House and um, who had been running the group for decades before he was forced out during the internal struggle back in 2019. And so we may had to come in and and take over that role. Um, And now he's now he's gone less than four years later of his own volition, too. So he not a great sign for them. I and, mean, you know, obviously we've reported extensively on their declining membership numbers, you know, they're down over a million members in the last four years. And that equals a declining, uh, revenue basis as well. So on top of that news, having your top lobbyists choose to leave at the NRA is is just more really bad news for the group. And it's hard to imagine how they're going to replace him with somebody who uh, has the same level of experience and influence that, you know, we, uh, we may had, let alone Chris Cox. So uh, I don't know what they're gonna do. But you know, it's just a further, further indication of how far down the, the NRA is has spiraled to this point and how much further they're likely to go in the, in the near term here. But uh, we have unfortunately had to do a lot of negative stories on them in the past, well, really couple of years now. Um, And it doesn't seem like that trend is going to let up anytime soon. Um, So, you know, we, of course, will cover both sides of this debate as uh, independently as we possibly can. You know, and we have more stories like the Brady one, we will bring that to you. And we have more stories like what's going on at the NRA. We'll bring that to you as well. People deserve to know these things, uh, wherever you fall on the political spectrum. uh, it's important to stay informed and that's our job is to inform people. So, uh, we will continue to do that. Right. Jake (laughs) is best That's right. Yeah. (laughs) We're obviously a small publication here. We're independent, We don't uh, take money from any of these groups and never have and never will. Uh, Nobody pays us to write anything other than our members who are how we keep this thing going. The Reload is a a member funded publication, 100% member funded. It's 100% owned by me. And uh, we think that gives us an advantage in these sorts of stories because we can remain independent while being informed and bring you sober, serious firearms reporting and analysis. And that's what we're going to continue to do. If you want to help support us in that, you can like and share this video or podcast uh, wherever you're listening to it. You can rate us, give us a rating, give us a thumbs up on YouTube what have you, you can head over to the reload.com and sign up for our free newsletter. Or if you are already signed up for that newsletter, you can take it to the next step and become one of those members that supports our reporting. Uh, We have um, a yearly and a monthly membership option. If you want to help fund what we're doing, you will also, of course, get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of Reporting and analysis that you can't find anywhere else that are member exclusives, you will get this podcast a day early, as well as the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment. So make sure you head over to TheReload.com and check out those options today. And we will be back again for you next week.